Hi, this is Dr. Mike Chupp, and you are listening to CMDA Matters, the weekly podcast of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. When this episode drops, you know I'm going to be on the road headed to Atlanta, Georgia for the Winter CMDA Board of Trustees meeting. This weekend, will you please pray for our leaders and trustees of CMDA? We're so grateful for the prayers of our members as we all seek to lead this organization and align with God's will as we do so. For this week's episode, I ask CMDA's Conscience Protections and Public Policy Specialist, Mr. J.C. Bisek, who's from our CMDA's advocacy team, to join me as my co-host. That's because we have a great conversation with Dr. Ralph Alvarado. He's a physician whose career and calling brought him into public service, and Dr. Alvarado now finds himself serving as the commissioner of Tennessee's Department of Health. Keep on listening, and you're going to hear more about the unique calling from God for Dr. Alvarado as he went from health care to public service. You're going to hear about his amazing perseverance to even have the opportunity to serve first in the state of Kentucky and then in Tennessee because he lost in three different elections before finally winning a seat in the Kentucky legislature. You know, it kind of reminds me a little bit of the story of another Kentuckian, one of America's greatest presidents, Abraham Lincoln. I want to ask you to hang in there with us for the audio. It starts off just a little bit garbled on Zoom, but it gets better quickly. So let's listen in. Well, today on CMDA Matters, I am excited to welcome to the program Dr. Ralph Alvarado, uh, who's a medical doctor and a fellow of the American College of Physicians. Earlier this year, 2023, he joined Tennessee Governor Bill Lee's cabinet as the 15th commissioner of the Tennessee Department of Health. He had spent nearly a decade in public service, actually in the state of Kentucky, as the first Hispanic member elected to the Kentucky General Assembly. And then he was uh, highly desirable by our governor and so recruited to come take that post that I just mentioned. Thank you today for joining us, uh, Dr. Alvarado. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you guys. So I've also asked our uh, public policy specialist, uh, J.C. Bisek, who works on what I call the A-team, our advocacy team. So welcome to the program, J.C. Thanks for having me, Dr. Trump. Well, Dr. Alvarado, I think it's safe to say that a very small percentage of physicians ever get involved and run for a political office. So when and how did you decide that public service was for you and that you would get involved in politics and serve there in Kentucky first? Yeah, it's a kind of a wild story, but... One that I try to be, I try to encourage a lot of other providers to do too, because I think a lot of times as doctors, we're busy with patients, we're busy with taking care of folks, dealing with government, dealing with paperwork with insurance companies, and that uh, we hear about things that happen and we notice after it's happened, once once a policy has taken effect, and someone tells us, hey, you've got a new rule you have to adhere to, you've got to fill this out or do that, and that's when the complaints come because we're not really proactive when it comes to the political sphere. I think a lot of us do that as dirty and stuff that we don't want to get involved with uh, because a lot of us are much more altruistic and we're worried about our patients and their everyday care we don't have the time to follow a lot of those things but it's important for us to be engaged and be involved whether it be with your specialty or organization or whether state organized medicine or any kind of other organization that will advocate to your 
views on health to be involved at that and be at the table. Otherwise, we're typically on the menu. And I think a lot of docs are frustrated looking back that we wish we would have been more engaged or somehow it's been taken, the, the control of medicine has been taken away from us. The way I got involved was really, I, you know, I was, you know, young Republican, uh, you know, raised up in the Reagan era. My parents were immigrants. Father always instilled the need to vote and be engaged. Um, and he took a lot of pride in that. And but I was never a political science guy. I was a biology major. I went to, you know, didn't have a lot of money. I, I overloaded my credits. I finished my college uh, years in three years. I was the youngest guy in my med school class. Got through med school, got through residency. My, my wife and I met when I was in med school. We got married. And when we were finishing up in Kentucky, we decided to stick around. I joined the State Medical Association. They reached out uh, on a tort reform bill uh, and asked for me to call my state legislator to ask him because he was a, a kind of a swing vote to vote a, a certain way for the bill. And so I contacted the guy and he thanked me for calling him. And in the end, he didn't vote at all. He skipped the vote on purpose. <laughs> and that got me almost more upset. I could almost handle the guy not voting my way, but saying, I at least listened to your position. And I waited out and waited. But he just didn't vote. He got scared to vote. And I told my wife, you know, I got to get more involved. Uh, with, with the political process, because, I mean, this, this is the kind of stuff that would upset me about it in, in, with politicians. And I went to the office one morning a couple of months later. Someone was knocking on our door campaigning for office. My wife answered and said, oh, yeah, we're Republicans. Put your, put your sign out there. By the way, my husband wants to get more involved. And that guy was the local party chairman. He said, I've heard of your husband. And so he gave me a call and said, hey, listen, uh, here you got a pretty good sized practice here in town. I'm about running for state house. And I thought, you know, I'm a young guy full of, you know what? And I thought, hey, look, I'm going to, these guys are a bunch of knuckleheads. I can fix this stuff. Let me at them. And I ran for office uh, in 2004, followed exactly what the party told me to do, raise money. I knocked on every day in the county. So I finished my office work. Before I'd hand all my notes and stuff, I'd leave. I'd go campaign until it got dark, came back to the office, finished notes, did that every day during a campaign. We lost in 2004, uh, lost narrowly. And then I said, hey, your name might ease up, run again in 2006. So I ran in 06. Uh, it was George Bush's second term, midterm, horrible year for Republicans. I got crushed. And uh, <laughs> uh, well, that's, you know, I'm not going to run again. Uh, 2010, the party called me up and said, hey, we want you to run for state senate now against that guy that didn't vote against that guy. And I said, listen, my last name's Alvarado. It's not your typical central eastern Kentucky name. I don't think I'm going to get elected. I've been beaten down twice. No, we think we can. And my wife and I prayed about it, which is something we didn't do with our first couple of times. We prayed, asked for direction. What do you want me to do? And I asked God, hey, do you want me to do this? Make it clear. Make it obvious. And if not, if I don't hear from you, I'm, I mean, I assume the answer is no. I wasn't prepared. That was months prior. Months went by. People heard, hey, I heard you might run. I said, yeah, you know, I prayed. I haven't heard anything. I don't think I'm supposed to. Two weeks before the filing deadline, my wife and I went to church, heard a sermon that kicked us both in the gut independently. I remember when we called for the altar, I turned to my wife, she goes, yeah, I know, I know. Like, she almost didn't want to answer yes. And we went ahead and filed. Ran a really strong race. We won our home county. We won two of the six counties, including our home county, which in rural parts of Kentucky and Tennessee is a big deal because people there know my opponent, who was the guy who was the, you know, it, it, the incumbent for 12 years or something, was known and from that county. So here I am, an outside kid, and, and won. Uh, and then um, we, but we lost in, in the end. And I thought, okay, God, I asked for this, and this is what happened. And and they said, hey, look, uh, four years, the census is done. We're going to redistrict, do it one more time. I told my wife, and she goes, this is it. Get it out of your system. She goes, what do you, and that's three times already. What, what do you want to keep running for? And we ran the fourth time. Um, she came down with breast cancer that, that spring. Wow. Found out. I, she said, no, 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 I'll go through all this. You promised this is your last time. 
And so we ran nasty race. Uh, she went through surgery treatment. Thank God everything's gone well for her. And she's in, you know, been in a cure basically, you know, after five years and she's um, nine years out now and doing really well, but we won the race. And once we got in, I had 10 years of pent up healthcare policy. I wanted to run and filed a ton of legislation. And in the next two years, got a lot of that legislation through much to the surprise of my leadership. And then they vaulted me into uh, kind of being the health and welfare chairman. So I got to oversee all the healthcare policy coming to the Senate for the next six years. That first year I was in office, Rand Paul asked me to introduce him when he ran for president. I did that. Then when he dropped out, I saw something about, you know, what it, what it mattered for Latinos involved in kind of the, what mattered to them politically. I sent an email to someone to kind of review uh, what I thought would need to be the message for people at the convention. We were delegates going to that convention in 2016. I then got a call and an invitation to go and uh, be on the rules committee and then to speak at the convention, which was really unusual. It's like being a double-A pitcher and getting called to the playoffs uh, to throw for the first time in the majors. And so spoke at the national convention, got an invitation to serve as President Trump's kind of director of minority health or the Office of Minority Health in D.C. And again, I was in my second year in, in public office, and I thought, I don't, I don't know anybody in D.C. Do I want to move to D.C. at many of my clinical practice? So I turned him down on that, and then really Governor um, Bevin invited me to run with him as his lieutenant governor running mate in 2019 for his re-election. So I wound up running for that office, lost, and then got invited. By, I met Governor Lee during that campaign, and then he contacted me here this past year and said, hey, how about being my commissioner of health? And so um, kind of here I am in this role now, too. So kind of a wild story of how all this has happened, but really it came through just me making a comment to my wife, and my wife happening to tell the wrong person. And that's how I got invited to run and got involved. And really, since then, I've been 20 years now uh, being involved with the Republican Party. In a lot, got to know a lot of people all over the state, uh, all over the country, really, uh, both in federal and state levels. And I'm fortunate to have a chance, by being a bit outspoken on some issues, to be considered someone that's kind of one of the go-to people for healthcare policy within, I think, the party, at least in our region. So proud of that. And God has put me on an interesting journey, and it's still going on. So I don't know what the next steps are, but it's been really exciting. Yeah, that's that's a great story and great background. In that line, what was it uniquely that drew you to Tennessee and out of Kentucky uh, and to join uh, Governor Bill Lee's uh, cabinet here? Well, yeah, so so interesting enough. So last year I was serving in, in Kentucky. I had run for lieutenant governor. I had a lot of people asking me to run for governor last year in Kentucky. Uh, and, um, you know, there was a lot of people jumping into the primary mix. I was um, I, I did not draw a, a an opponent. For the fall and the filing deadline came and went so i ran an post for the kentucky state senate this past like a year ago november and um we were exploring that we were doing a lot of praying um asking what do you want me to do you know make the doors for me it's always about give me roadblocks if you don't want me to do something make it wide open and make it easy if something is supposed to if it's where you want me to go looking at that i think daniel cameron i decided to, to jump in the mix and when he did i called him up i said are you going to run for governor yes well, if you're in, I don't think I'm going to. I said, just because uh, his name ID was going to be higher. Uh, we were kind of running in the same lane. We were going to be probably the same base within the party there. So that door kind of closed, and I had been exploring it for a few months. There was an opportunity to serve. I was on the executive committee for uh, the National Conference of State Legislatures. It represents 9,000 legislators around the entire country, kind of advocating for federalism with the federal government and to let states be the ones to initiate a lot of new ideas, give them more freedom, and to be able to get things done ran for the leadership of that, and uh, I thought we were going to get it, and we lost that by one vote. If I had become the leader of that organization, I would have stayed in the legislature. So when that happened and fell through, another door closed, and all the while in the middle of all this, 
someone had reached out and said, hey, Governor Lee has specifically asked if you're really interested in serving in this capacity. And I thought, I don't need anybody in Tennessee. You know, my, I talked to my wife about it. We prayed about this. And, and she goes, well, is it something you want to do? I don't know. You know, I don't know. But this door kept staying open. They, I kind of blew it off, thinking it wouldn't work out financially because I earned less money than I would as a doctor. And they, they pursued me and said, hey, look, why don't you talk to one of our head people here, they said, listen, this administration works great. Everything's, you know, governor is online with the General Assembly. And why don't you come down and interview? Prior to that interview, I called a friend of mine in Kentucky who had served in a similar role in Kentucky, who's at the University of Kentucky. And I, I called him and said, listen, I've been given this opportunity. What do you think I should do? And he said, are you kidding? You need to go do that. That's an automatic. You're going to go from a micro role as a legislator to a macro role to oversee the health care policy for 7 million people in Tennessee. That's a governor and a legislature that's aligned with your philosophies and your politics. They're doing great things in Tennessee. Everybody's watching what Tennessee's doing, and they're growing. If you can make, you have a lot of out of the box thinking, and if that state has all the innovation that's going on, all the innovation in the country is happening in Asheville. If you want that to take root, that's where you need to go. And he said, you have to ask yourself a fundamental question: Do you want to be more of a politician or more of a doctor? And I said, well, I'm kind of both. I'm good at both. And he said, yeah, you are, but you got to pick one or the other. And I said, well, the political stuff is for a short while. I'm a doctor for life. And he goes, well, then you need to go. That's the proper role. You can make a bigger impact. And if you can make Tennessee move positively in a healthcare direction, all the states around you will follow suit. And he commented, you know, he starts thinking about other steps. You know, oh, this can happen for you in private sector, you know, DC for coffee, all these different things. And I've always told him, look, I never have done anything in, in this sphere with the next step in mind. I just don't. I kind of as doors present themselves, you know, and they open, I step through them. If God willing, and they want me to do that, then I proceed with that next step. And and I grow where I'm planted. And then if something else presents itself, then you pray about it and see if you're supposed to go there. So really coming to Tennessee after being in Kentucky for 28 years, my family and my kids being raised and growing up there, probably leaving at the peak of my influence on healthcare policy. This is the door that opens and I step through it. And so here we are. And I've gotten a chance now to to visit every county in the state already. I visited every health department, every regional office. We've gotten a good feel for what's going on in Tennessee, trying to re-energize a department that's been beaten down by the pandemic. And um, people that said you were doing too much, you're not doing enough. And a lot of people in the department just trying to do the right thing moving forward. And really an opportunity to refocus what the department's going to go after we come out of COVID now, to start getting back to our roots as a department, to start angling on the things that are going to be affecting, you know, what kills most Tennesseans is heart disease, and cancers and trying to get back to a way that we can detect those early, find ways to reduce those diseases in people and give people here an opportunity to live longer and better and healthier lives. And so it's it's been a again an interesting turn of events. When I did you would have told me a year and a half ago I'd be in Tennessee during this struggle, would have said no way. But again, the opportunity presented itself, we prayed, and when we came, the doors opened. And so we followed in faith to, to a certain degree. So we've been here for nine months and we're really having a blast, enjoying it. The state is great. People have been very friendly, very you know, very warm. It's just been a reception for us to, to come here and kind of do our work. Well, Dr. Alvarado, our listening audience is national and even international. And I noticed that in your track record is that you've been co-chair of the National Coalition of Physician Legislators. And so I'm just curious for those who are listening across the country, other physicians who maybe, maybe not yet they've considered going into public service, but what would you say distinguishes physicians who choose to do this sort of public service versus maybe other professionals who go the path that you've gone? It's, it's a sacrifice. I mean, I think I've had a lot of colleagues who've asked, you, you saw, you know, I had a lot of effectiveness in the General Assembly. I was pretty compelling behind closed doors. I could convince 
other colleagues uh, as to why they need to vote for certain things. I wasn't always successful, but more often than not, I was. And so a lot of them say, hey, I want to do the same thing. How do I get involved? And I'd say, well, you have to suspend your practice from January through April when session was in. And so if you're a surgeon, you have to not do surgeries for four months. And they start calculating how much money does that cost me, you know, and, and they start, you know, realizing how much of an effect and how much of a sacrifice. It would probably cost me about $100,000 a year to serve in the General Assembly. I could have made more money staying in private practice. And so it's a matter really of the willingness to sacrifice that to come and make influence. I found a lot of fun, you know, watching my colleagues and, and doctors who had always envisioned politicians, never listening to them, never following their advice, that finally having someone on the inside who understood them, who was fighting for the things they fought for and seeing success, it energized other doctors. I got a lot of energy out of that. I had a lot of fun watching doctors feel like they were in control on certain things again, which is something that we feel like we lost. So that was part of it. But I, I, being part of the, the National Coalition, um, it was a, a bipartisan group. I mean, it was, you had to have a Republican and a Democrat heading it. So there was another doctor out of Oregon, very liberal doctor. But we often found that the things we fought for in public health and healthcare policy aligned. Mm-hmm. Uh, more often than not, those things aligned. There were occasions when we differed on certain things. Uh, so obviously, I'm a very pro-life guy. My counterpart was very pro-abortion. So we just didn't, you know, on those topics, there was just never any, we're trying to even bring that up for debate because we know we're not going to agree. So we would, we would agree to put those things aside and focus on other things. And we would, you know, if I was going to work on things that were pro-life, things I work with my right to life organizations in the state, and I would, I would advocate through that. When it came to the medical organizations, um, often if you brought those in, I didn't bring those up because I knew that I would tick off half of the, of the membership who might not agree with me. Uh, but the other side often would bring their proposals wanting to force the side on you know on my side to do what and I, I would tell them look don't do that you're going to divide the doctors who can agree on a lot of different things we agree on smoking policy we agree on things we need to do for for drug treatment and helping expand coverage for folks and a lot of those kinds of things we can all agree on when you bring in topics that would divide the membership it would potentially blow it up and ruin it and say don't don't do those things fight those fights outside of the organization and so we often would try to avoid some of the topics that were very divisive to make sure that we were unified. And the things that we talked about, you know, the doctors would agree on. So it was it was a bipartisan group. I often didn't know what political affiliations they had. I mean, they were all obviously political because they were one party or the other. But the topics were more educational, more topics that uh, there was agreement on that we could find a way to work together. We would meet quarterly by Zoom, typically even before the pandemic, and. Um, you know, when there was a national meeting of legislators, we would often just kind of break off on our own side to have coffee or lunch to talk about what was going on in their states and what solutions could you find. So it was a good it was a good work group of people from wide backgrounds. And again, most of the folks that were physicians were there for the improvement of health outcomes in their states and trying to get policies that uh, would protect the patient physician relationship and and kind of foster that. And that was a lot of the energy behind it. And it often was non, you know, it felt nonpartisan, to be perfectly honest, which is a little bit of a, a nice break sometimes. Dr. Alvarado, you mentioned being able to maybe still do practice in the Kentucky General Assembly. Is that the case as a public health commissioner in Tennessee? Are you still seeing patients? I am, yeah. So uh, part of the condition, again, like I said, the pay was less. So um, I ask and I still see some patients. I'm, I'm really a clinician at heart as it is. And uh, I'm doing long-term care mostly now, I'm kind of. The traditional medical practice, which I had for years, like a lot of doctors, we sold out our practice back in 2013. Three years in, they changed our computer system, really slowed me down. And I had a computer system prior that worked well, but the new one they put in was really not very good. And uh, my numbers went down. They said, hey, your numbers are down. We think it's all this political stuff. And I said, no, it's 
the computer system. Give me my old one back. I'll be back up to speed. Now you'll get used to it. In the meantime, we'll cut your salary in half. And I said, yeah, well, if you're going to do that, I'll go back to being independent. And they said, okay. And I said, okay. So left clinical practice and kind of did long-term care, which I had always done a little bit of, but really expanded that. And so those folks are, you know, in the nursing homes on weekends and holidays. And so what I talked to the governor's team, they said, and when I asked them, could I still do clinical practice? He said, we would encourage you to do that. We think it keeps you grounded. And I said, great. Uh, how much time do I get? Well, we'll give you two hours a week. Well, the drive back is three hours and 15 minutes. And I said, look, I, how do I instead of two hours a week, you give me eight hours one day a month? And they said, yeah, same amount of time, uh, same precedent. And uh, it's out of the states. So there's no conflict here in So, yes. And so what I do is I typically take one day around a long weekend. So the next long weekend is Thanksgiving Day weekend. So I'll take one day around that weekend as my clinical day for the month. And then I'll, I'll drive up there, let's say, Tuesday night. I'll take Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and round on patients those days. Spend the next week and a half doing my medical notes. And I can still bill for those services. And it makes up the difference. And so I've been doing that. Uh, since I've been here, it's worked out so far. Um, there's an occasional month where there's no holiday. Uh, so it's just a very busy three days that I typically take there. But it's typically, you know, if it's Labor Day, you know, I do it around Martin Luther King weekend, President's weekend, all those different weekends. There's usually a day off somewhere that we get a, an extra day that I can I can do rounds. And so that's how I've been doing it. And I have two phones, one for my clinical and one for state business. So it works out pretty well. I wanted to ask about a couple of topics that I believe are high priority to you and or have become front and center because of some recent events and their escalating concern in both here in, in Tennessee and in the nation. The first is the opioid crisis in this state, particularly East Tennessee and Appalachia, and similarly for you in, back in East uh, Kentucky. What initiatives were in place when you started in this role in January, and have you taken any different approach or adopted or ramped up programs initiated by your predecessors? Uh, so that's my first question. And then second, on uh, the topic of gun violence, uh, I'm thinking in particular, of course, of the Covenant uh, Christian School shooting earlier this year in Nashville. Uh, I know Governor Lee put together some uh, executive measures to be taken uh, after that. From your perspective, as a Christian physician who respects the Second Amendment, how can healthcare professionals in particular make a difference in this vexing and intensifying crisis here in America today? Yeah, so those are so they're two tough questions. I mean, the first one on the opioid uh, stuff, really, we've got a, a separate department here in, in Tennessee that's the Department of Mental Health and Substance Abuse Services. So basically, a lot of the main policies, a lot of the efforts, the monetary kind of push goes through that department. Commissioner Marie Williams is a great partner for us, does a lot of work in that space. We have also a smaller department uh, that we've got that kind of works on opioid response coordination uh, office. It's called ORCO. And um, they work on trying to help us uh, get Narcan into the community. Um, they work with a lot of education. So a lot of our efforts at the Department of Health is uh, we've got 31, we have a, a grant that comes in from the CDC. We just got it renewed. We got another five years, about $5.4 million, really in terms of education efforts for people in their communities. We have 31 counties where we've identified in the state of Tennessee that are responsible for 71% of the overdoses. And so um, we try to focus a lot of our efforts there. Most of those, believe it or not, are in central, eastern uh, uh, kind of Tennessee. And then we've got also uh, Shelby County out in Memphis, which is also one of the hot spots. A lot of efforts on education of elementary kids, junior high kids, high school kids, starting at a very early age, trying to get them to teach them the dangers of these things. And then also, again, efforts on just trying to get um, treatment out for people, exposure, identification of those things. Uh, we, we do fund, the state has allowed uh, syringe programs, which are helping people kind of exchange 
uh, syringe programs, a lot of you have HIV rates, hepatitis C rates, all those things climbing in the state rapidly. If we can get folks uh, like they've done in Kentucky, which was very successful there, I think 65 of the 120 counties there have those programs that open health departments. We have the ability to do it here in Tennessee, but we have to have local officials give us permission to do them or ask us to do them. We haven't had a lot of success in that regard. I've been appealing to the county mayors to let us do that. Every time a person comes in, it's a point of contact to get them into treatment, to get the mental health resources, different things they might need to help them get off of this stuff and break the cycle. And I think a lot of times people just don't know how to break that cycle. And so there's an opportunity for us. The more contact we have people that are in there, to get them to a safe place, get them into treatment. And we've got a lot of great partners that are doing good treatment here in the state of Tennessee. I've had a chance to meet ones like Aspel, which are often faith-based and help introduce some of that. On the second question on gun violence, you know, it's becoming an epidemic. I mean, we've tracked, we have more deaths uh, from, you know, enough from children from gun violence, unfortunately, in the state. And so it's a real problem. And um, again, there's a lot of people that say, well, just control the guns. I don't know that that's necessarily going to be the answer. I mean, we start seeing some of those things happen in other states where they've got a lot of really strict but you know you know kind of laws on gun control and it doesn't really make an impact on it i think the bigger issue is a mental health issue and a mental health crisis that we have in the state i give a lot of talks um about um you know the issue with loneliness in this country right now and a lot of people are isolating themselves part of that is cell phones and social media and a lot of that whole world that we've got a whole generation growing up within that and they have less contact with people covid made that worse to a lot of degrees so it, our Surgeon General nationally has been calling on that issue. I often give talks about how many friends people identify these days and statistically show that and how we have a lot less friends anymore, that people have less people they trust in their lives. Um, they have adverse childhood experiences when they're, they're children and how a lot of those things impact uh, outcomes for abuse and problems with mental health issues as they get older. So we've been trying to promote positive childhood experiences. And the more of those that you can have in your life, your outcomes from a health position are better, uh, mental health is better. I've also talked about, believe it or not, one of the statistics from the National Institute of Health and then also study from Harvard, looking at church attendance in people, that women who went to church regularly had five times less risk of suicide, men three times less risk of suicide. And so um, there's something to that sense of community, sense of belonging and believing something more than ourselves that makes a difference in the human experience in our human lives. And obviously I have my beliefs on what that you know, higher power is and who the higher power is. Uh, but from a scientific basis, I just try to present it and put the information out there. And I've had a very, very, very well received by people saying thank you for talking about this, because I think it's important that as the less we have of that as a country that has less church attendance, less focus on those things, it's no wonder that our mental health issues are going up higher and higher and having more problems. And so there's been a lot of effort on that. I know the governor was really affected by that shooting. Uh, he had uh, a very dear friend who was killed in that shooting. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, when you see children killed, you wonder about the evil in the world and the mm -hmm. things that we're doing. And so we have to really, it, it comes on all of us to start talking about these things, which are often uncomfortable discussions as a society, that we've got to start talking about, you know, what are we doing? Uh, and it takes more than just government to solve those problems. It takes the church, it takes our schools, it takes our families, our places of business, everyone to be involved in finding ways to help address these issues. That I think a lot of it is becoming, we're becoming more isolated, more people, and you got to get people more a sense of community, accountability to each other. Um, and if you feel like we belong to something, I think there's less likelihood of people, you know, taking on these kinds of acts, uh, which are frankly just evil. And you hate to see it happen, but it's uh, it's unfortunately getting a lot of attention every day in the media. And once you hear about one, it seems like people catch on, others do the same thing uh, to carry out more acts. So the more that we can do to help, yeah. I think the mental health crisis, uh, the better. 
I'm guessing that uh, one of the big challenges for you as a Christian who's entered top politics uh, is the temptation to compromise on, on some of your core values and beliefs uh, along the way there. How have you been able to protect yourself from, from a drift in faith uh, in the political realm, recognizing these days that Christians who maintain uh, an orthodox biblical view uh, seem to be in the minority and increasingly are, are viewed as, as the enemy? Yeah, well, I think it's um, it's what I encourage everybody to do, too, is I think a lot of times because there's been certain topics, I mean, the topic of abortion, for example, has been a topic that has not been debated in 50 years in this country. It just decision was made and people have just assumed it. And um, if they say, well, I'm against it, well, why? You know, and they can start biblical beliefs and religious beliefs. On my side, I need to be able to cite uh, scientific reasons why I don't support those things and why I think scientifically there isn't any reason. And that I know what I believe in, I can defend those things scientifically. So my arguments are typically more science-based. You know, I, I went to a medical school recently, for example, on, on the topic of being pro-life. It was a, a fetal heartbeat bill that I voted for, um, and I went and spoke to a group of first and second-year medical students in Pikeville uh, College there, osteopathic school. And you know, I, I just envisioned this is Eastern Kentuckians or Eastern Kentucky kids. No, they're from all over the country, right? It's a medical school that's located there. And after I gave my talk, I had a young lady from New York who approached me and said, knowing what you know as a doctor, how can you vote for this fetal heartbeat bill? And I said, yeah, listen, have you ever uh, never pronounced anybody dead? You ever done that yet? And she goes, well, no, I'm the first year student. I haven't done it. I said, at some point in your medical career, you're going to be asked to pronounce somebody dead. Uh, not a fun task, but a nurse is going to call you in the middle of the night and say, I think Mrs. Jones has passed away. You don't just say, yeah, I'll take your word for it. Put her in the morgue. You don't do that. You have to go down. Take your stethoscope. You got to do the physical examination, and there are five things you have to document in the medical record to confirm that someone is dead. It can't be responsive. Got to be no uh, palpable pulse, no respirations, no reflexes, and no auscultable heartbeat. If any of those five things are still there, that person's still alive. You can't declare them dead, and that's understood. That's medical. We do it in every death note you see. Those things are documented to confirm that someone is gone. So. If you hear a heartbeat at the end of life, that's still a sign of life. If you hear one at the beginning of life, you would hear one there, and it's not someone else. That, that belongs to somebody. It's a sign of life as we determine at the end of life. And I said, and we often use DNA as a human identifier as well. If your DNA is somewhere, someone knows that you've been there. It can't belong to anybody else. It's an identifying human marker of you individually. It can only exist for one individual in the entire universe. So if you've got a mom sitting in front of you and you listen to her chest, her heart beats 80, you listen to her abdomen and there's one of 150, that's not her heartbeat, but it's somebody's heartbeat. It's a sign of life you've already determined. And if there's a unique collection of DNA inside that mother as well, that is not her own, that's a human identifying marker. So if you have both of those together, life exists there at the very least. Most of them were kind of a little stunned. It wasn't, hey, the Bible tells me this. Hey, this is what God has said. I believe all those things and that's all part of my faith. But my scientific understanding aligns with my faith as well. And so I had a lot of students I would once send me an email later on saying, hey, I'm an atheist, is what the kid told me. I appreciate someone arguing this from a non-religious standpoint. And my response to him was, if at the end of your medical education, you're still an atheist, you haven't learned anything in medical school. <laughs> way too complex to be something just done by random happenstance. It's, it's completely and clearly by design. And so a lot of the things that I've developed, I often have argued in my own mind prior, if I'm going to argue something publicly, I have to be able to reason that and logically explain those things. And we as doctors are all trained to be that. But we have to be able to express those things from a scientific and logical basis. And if you can, it's difficult for people who oppose you to do that. Now, some might have 
you know, illogical arguments in the opposite. And you can argue and that's part of the whole debate in politics. But that's how I've approached things. And I often use the example of Paul. Paul arguing with the Greeks, you know, from a, sometimes a scientific angle. And he came from those things to speak that language. You got to do the same thing when it comes to medicine is often have some things that things that are being questioned, which I find sometimes ridiculous and questioning. But people come with an opposing standpoint. You have to be able to defend those things, I think, scientifically. And that's where I found it to be a little bit of easier argument. When I, when I come from that angle, people have always respected that. And I always encourage young people, know what you believe in and why you believe it. So it's not just enough to believe it. You have to know why and to defend it. And believe me, science defends the things that we often uh, read biblically. So it's it's all there. It's just a matter of hatching that out and developing the arguments and being able to defend it. Well, thank you, Dr. Alvarado, for joining us today on CMDA Matters. And uh, I hope there's going to be another opportunity for us to get back to uh, have you back on the program to talk about something, whether it's in Tennessee or across the country. We didn't even have a chance, uh, JC, to talk about uh, healthcare right of conscience. But that's a big deal uh, these days for our members is to be able to protect yep. their right to practice conscientiously. So God bless you and our prayers are with you. Thank you so much, guys. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Excited to announce the newest addition to CMDA's long list of resources for our members, and it is specifically for students and residents. Called Standing Strong in Training, this new curriculum helps healthcare students and residents stand up against the cultural pressures facing Christians within healthcare today. The curriculum's seven modules are designed for group settings allowing attendees to solidify their foundational worldview beliefs regarding important issues, such as the beginning of life, end of life, and biblical sexuality. Each module also offers ideas of how to winsomely defend biblical values and positively interact with others in developing their worldview beliefs. For more information and to download this free resource, visit cmda.org slash standingstrong. You know, coming soon in the month of February, we are excited to launch a new addition to the lineup of CMDA podcasts, and we're calling this new podcast The Voice of Advocacy. This new monthly podcast is hosted by Senior Vice President of Bioethics, Dr. Jeff Barrows, and it will feature members of our very own advocacy team, as well as various special guests. I hope that you'll listen and learn more about CMDA's grassroots advocacy efforts at both the state and the federal levels, as well as our legal and legislative victories and how CMDA members and our champions can be involved in serving as a voice for the vulnerable. In future CMDA Matters podcasts, I'll give you more details on how you can tune in to this new resource from CMDA. It may still be winter, and you might still have snow on the ground where you're living, but our team here at CMDA is already looking forward to spring, because that means the arrival of the 2024 CMDA National Convention. I want to know, have you taken the time to register yet? I want to personally invite you to join me at the Ridgecrest Conference Center just outside Asheville, North Carolina. It will be May 2nd through the 5th, as we raise his banner. That's our theme together. This is my absolute favorite event of the year. 
And I can't wait to join together in worship and fellowship with hundreds of my fellow Christians in healthcare. If you'd like to register and learn more, just visit natcon.cmda.org. Join us on Saturday, February 3rd at 10 a.m. Eastern Time for The Convergence, Critical Conversations for Healthcare and Theology. This is a virtual webinar hosted by CMDA and the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. Dr. Daryl Bach, Dr. Jeff Barrows, and Nicole Hayes will help you sort through the polarization we see in today's political landscape, as well as the two kinds of evangelicalism in the public square. You can learn more and register at cmda.org events. Well, next Thursday, we've got a great interview ready as we enter the busy month of February, as it is the beginning of Black History Month. I was joined by CMDA President-elect Dr. Omari Hodge for an in-depth conversation with Miss Elizabeth Perkins. She's the daughter of Reverend Dr. John Perkins, and she now serves as co-president of the John and Vera May Perkins Foundation. Well, Elizabeth continues her parents' legacy of reconciliation and justice and community development. So be sure and join me for this impactful conversation next week. I want to close with these powerful words from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. And I think about these words every time I prepare to get in front of a group of CMDA members and other constituents to share, because Peter tells us, God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well, and I'll put in parentheses, Christian healthcare professionals, to serve one another. Do you have the gift of speaking? Then speak as though God himself were speaking through you. Do you have the gift of helping others? Do it with all the strength and the energy that God supplies. Then everything you do, Peter tells us, will bring glory to God through Jesus Christ. Dr. Ralph Alvarado is a wonderful example, I think, of a Christian who has taken these scriptures to heart because he's using his spiritual gifts as a public servant, combined with his knowledge and his experience as a doctor, in order to work with the government to try and make a difference for our Lord and currently for all the citizens of the great state of Tennessee. Through the efforts of Dr. Alvarado and thousands of God's sons and daughters around the country, we will continue to bring the hope and healing of Jesus Christ to our world. That's what matters to CMDA, friends, and CMDA matters. We'll see you next week in the month of February, God willing. This podcast has been a production of the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. The opinions expressed by guests on this podcast are not necessarily endorsed by the Christian Medical and Dental Associations. CMDA is a nonpartisan organization that does not endorse political parties or candidates for public office. The views expressed on this podcast reflect judgments regarding principles and values held by CMDA and its members and are not intended to imply endorsement of any political party or candidate.